Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word this morning. God, I thank you for the time that you've provided for us to hear it. And so, God, I ask that you would be with me this morning, Lord. Let me trust in nothing but the power of your Holy Spirit to write these words on the hearts of all who hear, mine included, Father. Would you please help me speak clearly and from the text, not uh, imposing anything onto it, but only drawing out of it what you breathe into it, Father, what you intended to be said from it. Lord, I pray that you would be with me. And Lord, I pray that you would watch over the hearts and ears and minds of everyone who listens. And I pray that everyone would be able to listen, God, as we hear now these eternal words. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of our study through First Peter. We'll pick up in Second Peter at the first of the year since we'll take uh, the month of December to focus on Advent and to celebrate the first coming of our Lord into the world. We're looking at First and Second Peter and Jude together uh, as letters written to give hope to pilgrims in this world, to those who have no home here, whom God has called to himself through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of First Peter in that has been to give us uh, an identity, to establish that for us. We are the beloved of God, and because of that we are sojourners and exiles in the world, um, as God's people have always been. We are called to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good in a world where we will suffer for it. Peter has been implying the entire time that this calling, however, is based on something much bigger than our ability to carry it out. The foundation is grace. It has always been grace. It will always be grace. Grace is what makes us who we are. Grace is what carries us as we live so far from home. And in his closing exhortation to the sojourners and exiles in Asia Minor, Peter called pastors to shepherd believers with their eyes on Christ, while the church as a whole was called to humility and hope in the God of all grace. So now may we hear and believe God's word together. First Peter chapter 5, beginning with the first four verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That word so, there at the beginning here, is so pivotal in this text because it functions to give us a purpose for the office of pastor. The what of a pastor is one thing, the how and the why are another. And what we're meant to see here, I know we, we, we skipped a week because of, of Thanksgiving, which is fine, but remember the end of chapter 4, the tone, the content of chapter 4, it's in the midst of exhorting believers to entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good that Peter gives instructions to the pastors. The elders, this is the word presbyteros, whose equal in the Greek is episkopos, 
These words are interchangeable and they refer to the office of pastor in the church, those who feed or shepherd the flock, poimano. Peter is saying here then, since believers are called to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good in the midst of sharing in Christ's sufferings, the elders need to be taking care of the sheep. Pastors need to shepherd God's people. They need to take care of them. The word so in verse 1, because it starts that way, means that pastoral ministry is shepherding mainly because the church is a suffering people, a struggling people. This is a gift that God intended to give to His church once He had given the template for it finally in His Son. Listen to how the Word of God prepares us for what we're reading this morning. This is from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you. That would be a terrifying thing to hear if you were a shepherd at that time over the people. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So God's design for His people, His church as we've seen in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 of First Peter, his beloved in chapter 2, verse 11, that he gathers from all over the world, his design was to set shepherds over them who would care for them in such a way that they would no longer be afraid or dismayed, in such a way that none of them would ever again end up missing. The office of elder, of pastor, has been given to the church as a shepherding thing to fulfill that design. Pastors are not here to get you to do things for God. It's not the purpose. Pastors have been given to the church to shepherd you because you are going to struggle. You will struggle to believe the gospel more than anything else, which is why we shepherd by the word and nothing else. You will struggle as you suffer for being faithful in this world where we don't fit. We shepherd, pastors shepherd, so that you don't get hurt, so that you don't run away, so that you don't come up missing. I'm not here to be the go-between for your relationship with God. Do you understand that? That's who Jesus is. No man, no man is a mediator between heaven and earth, but the one man. The God-man, Christ Jesus. I'm not the guy with all the answers. I'm the guy who points to that guy. I want you to entrust your soul to God, not to me, beloved. And, and please hear me. Semantics matter. God's man is Jesus and only Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. Peter calls it. 
Notice here that Peter doesn't exhort pastors from the sidelines either, but as a participant in their ministry and as an apostle. Notice what he says. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The implication there is that shepherds have been given to each local church and are sufficient to lead each local church. There shouldn't be larger governing bodies of elders or rulers separated from the local church who rule over them from afar, that don't even know them, don't even know they exist. Among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, pastors, close to you, you know them. Shepherd the people you know. Exercise oversight. Right? That's, that's the calling. Exercise oversight. The Bible teaches that the authority in the church would rest in a group of pastors who shepherd the flock. That's the intention. They oversee. Notice that. It's not one pastor. That would be a tyrant. That would be a disaster. And it's not by mob rule either because that just results in anarchy. Right? But by a group of qualified pastors, here the Bible calls them elders, who care for the people. They are the ones to whom the task of oversight is given. That's right in front of us here. But notice here, before we get nervous about this, as we just work through what, it, what pastoring looks like, it's oversight, not control. It's o- oversight is different than control. Oversight is watching over. It's not micromanaging. And then he says, listen to how, how he breaks this down. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have them. So, in other words, God does not desire that the shepherds in the church would be men who are doing it because they feel like they have to. Right? He doesn't want that. He doesn't want His people to be led by those who are under a sense of nothing but obligation, but those who are under a sense of desire. They want to be doing it. In 1 Timothy 3, 1, where he lists the qualifications of an elder, of a pastor, Desiring the office is the first and foremost qualification. Desiring it. Isn't that amazing? You see how God is protecting His church here. If the men who serve you as pastors are doing it because they feel like they have to, you are not going to be cared for well. Listen to Hebrews thirteen, seventeen. This is the calling to the church in this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. Right? Don't obey and submit to the leaders because they're leaders. Submit to them because they are keeping watch over your soul. That's mine and Ron's task. Right? Do you want us watching over your souls because we feel like we have to? Or would you want, like, like, imagine that in a relationship. I show up at my door on October the 12th with uh, 17 red roses next October. And I ring the doorbell, which would be odd, because I don't have a doorbell and it's my house. <laughs> so I knock on the door, my wife comes to the door, and I give her these flowers. And she says, oh, babe, why did you do this? I said, well, I have to, it's our anniversary. Right? You don't, you don't want that. You don't want to be loved or served out of a sense of obligation. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them, that's to the congregation, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. To you, do you hear that? Do you see how God designed it so that this wouldn't be difficult for either of us in this? But we get in the way, don't we? We, 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 pastors get in the way, congregations get in the way. The call to the shepherd is to care for and watch over your soul because life as a sojourner and exile here will be hard. And the call to the congregation is to submit to that leadership in a way that makes them joyful to be serving you, not in a way that makes them groan to be serving you. That's the Bible. Right? You're only hurting yourself if you make pastoral ministry a burden to the pastor. Now, nobody here is doing that. I'm not, it's not a nice way for me to say something about me and you that we're, we're preaching the word. We're trying to. Right? The principle is here. You are only hurting yourself if you make pastoral ministry burdensome to the pastor. Your task from the Bible, is to let them lead you with a joyful heart. Don't turn them into men who are doing this because they can't do anything else, so that this is the only option they have. You will be hurt when you do that. It is you who will suffer for that. It is you who will be disadvantaged by that. If shepherds lord over the sheep and hurt them with that authority, they will answer to Jesus. They will answer to the chief shepherd. And if the sheep make the shepherd's lives miserable they will pay the price of being led by pastors that can't stand them. You see, the the, the template is there for this to be an oasis for us in the middle of the world. The template is there in God's Word. He has provided for us through His Word, for His church, for His sheep. When we depart from God's blessing or God's design, the result is misery, isn't it? I mean, what does God have to do to make that clear to us? God has put the checks and the balances in place, beloved. He doesn't want you hurt. He doesn't want you hurt. Trust His design for the church. Look at the end of verse 2. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So don't become a pastor for ego or money. Do it because you want to shepherd people which is caring for them, right? not bossing them. When, when you shepherd against your will, it's detrimental to the flock. Look at verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Pastors don't lead with a heavy hand that lords over the conscience. I do not have the authority to be the Holy Spirit in your life. I don't lead with an air. We're not supposed to lead with an air of spiritual superiority. Beloved, it is not I who come down off the mountain for you with a word from the Lord. It is Jesus Christ alone who has come down off the mountain with the word from the Lord. And it is to Him I point all the time, or I have absolutely no business being called pastor. None. When you stand before God's throne, beloved, I will not be sitting on it. There's a different way. Look at the text. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Biblical leadership is primarily influence, not control. 
It's primarily influence, not control. It's primarily relationships, not administration for the pastor. My calling from God is to exemplify what dependency on God would look like here. In this equation, you need to be close to examples in order to be able to see them. Because we've been called, these shepherds are also sheep, and we can't ever forget that. We've all been called to suffer according to God's will, all of us. To entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I am not above you. I'm one of you. Right? I just have this calling to shepherd you by the word of God. I, I, I have an ache. I don't know how else to explain it. I have an ache inside of me that I cannot shake to convince you that Jesus is enough. That's what drives me. That's what moves me. That's why I'm a pastor, right? I'm not a pastor because I have a great personality. I do not, right? I'm not type A. I'm not a go-getter. I burn microwave popcorn. I'm not very, right? But, but I, I will, I will say this. I tried. I tried to walk away from this. I did really hard. I tried to get my degree in business administration and just walk away. Right after several years of doing it, and then I, I quit. I thought I'm not, I thought the whole purpose I was in pastoral ministry for those first years was so that God could convince me I should not be in pastoral ministry. Like that, that, that's how much I, that's how negatively I thought about it. And then the hound of heaven chased me down to my Nissan Xterra at the time in the parking lot of the Limited Brands in Columbus on my lunch break in 2009, I remember it, and basically said to me, you know, I don't mean I heard him, I don't even mean it was like this, I just, he granted me repentance. He just moved to repent of my cowardice and my fear and my bitterness. You know, it was like, it was like a, what are, you, what are you doing here type thing? You know, let's move, let's go. And, and the amazing thing is you might say, well, then does that mean you're doing it? Then you're doing it out of compulsion. No, because the truth be told, even in the darkest and most difficult moments of being a pastor, I would rather die than do anything else. This is what I want to do. There's not a doubt in my mind. Not because I'm great, but because I absolutely love to talk to you about Jesus. I love Him. And I love Him because He loved me first. And I don't understand it. Not at all. I deserve condemnation a thousand times over for real sins. And yet God continues to be merciful to me. Beloved, the design is here for all of us to be okay. We need to trust God and submit to His Word and walk in it. What Peter has done for the church here is massive. Look at verse 4. Let me read that again. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So what? think now of how Peter doesn't separate so much the pastors from the flock. It's Notice what he says here. There's no promise for the pastor of a reward here on earth either, is there? 
Notice where he's putting the eyes of the pastors. The elder also labors in light of the future. In light of the unfading crown of glory. From chapter 1 verse 4. He doesn't labor to care for the people because of them ultimately, but because of Christ. All eyes on Christ, the whole letter. Pray for me then, as your pastor. Please pray for me. My tendency for the flesh is so strong, and it overwhelms me sometimes. Please pray for me. Just because I can see it doesn't mean I'm always doing it. So pray for me, please. I think 1 Peter 5 sets the tone for pastoral ministry in the church. I really do. I have to bow down to this text. So my position on pastoral ministry is that the Holy Spirit who resides in every believer will guide them throughout their lives to remain faithful to God in all things by continually revealing Jesus to them through His Word. Right. So my task, therefore is not, like I said, to get you to do things for God. It's not to make you obedient. As a pastor, my task is to shepherd believers through the trials of this life that come from faithfulness to Jesus in a world where you are called to and will suffer. I'm here because your souls have been entrusted to God. Pastors are an extension of the chief shepherd's care. They're a conduit of it. We are not the source Again, it's influence mainly, not control. This coming from Peter is so profound because of how Jesus restored this man after he denied him three times. Do you remember? That's the Peter that wrote this letter. What did Jesus say to him in John 21? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. It was the chief shepherd who said those things to Peter. This is who he is for the sheep. So in that, the pastor's calling is to be like Jesus. In 1 Peter, Jesus has been what? The shepherd and overseer of our souls out there and the chief shepherd of our souls in here. I don't know of anyone who would have had a better understanding of the basis for pastoral ministry than Peter. Right. So that's clear in the text. What have we seen? Elders, pastors, shepherd God's people in the right way with your eyes on Christ because they're going to suffer being faithful to God. Then the instructions now, the final instructions instructions extend to the rest of us. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You cannot lose your identity as a believer. You can't lose it. You cannot take your eyes off of it. You cannot live or think in such a way that you forget you are part of a family that stretches around the globe. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, 
who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, quickly, we should understand the use of elders in verse 5 to mean those who have the office of elder, not just those who are older, even though the instructions here are to you who are younger. It could be that we see that because Peter is reminding those who are younger by age that they also need to be subject to the elders because maybe the younger ones in the church struggle with that the most, but I don't think that's what he means because I don't know that younger people by age struggle with God's authority structure in the church any more or less than older saints by age do. I believe the text is speaking to those younger in the faith who are not elders, implying that elders need to be mature in the faith. Peter has already referred to us all as children of God in this letter, so we don't need to be offended by that distinction between older or younger in the faith. But elders in verse 5 are those who hold the office of elders specifically. First of all, because the word likewise there indicates Peter is continuing the discussion that he started in verse 1. And these are instructions about relating to those who hold an office in the church, not who are of a certain age in the church. Right, An entirely new subject would be introduced about relationships if this were a matter of age in the church. Second of all, the elders in verse 5 flow very naturally out of the discussion in verses 1 through 4. So he isn't starting a new topic. Thirdly, be subject to the elders. That line there, we've heard the word subject all through 1 Peter, haven't we? Be subject to the elders picks up on the idea of subjection that has been present in the whole letter. So the command here, if you'll notice, is not defer to or have respect for people when they're older. The command here is be subject to. And that has been there all along for positions of authority, which Peter has just established the elders, the pastors, have. Jesus is serious in His church about shepherds caring for the people. And he is serious about those who are not pastors in the church being subject to the pastors. Now, that could go really bad, right? Be subject to. That could go bad. But look at the basis here. The basis of that is, again, it is not because of the pastor. right? The basis of that command to be subject here is not because it's the pastor. Notice that. It's not because pastors are up here. And the church is down here. Remember, they're not supposed to lead like that. They're not supposed to be hard for you to subject yourself to in this context. The basis here for this command is what it has always been in First Peter. It's who God is. It's because of who God is. All of you. Notice what comes here. To all of us, he says, drape yourselves in humility because of God. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3, 34. It turns out God is always like that. He's always been like that. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We're all meant to hear that. All of us. God is, grace is God's saving favor. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is grace? Saving favor. Which means, God opposes those who think they can earn their salvation by their effort or their works. And it means that willingness to submit to pastoral leadership and here to one another 
a lack of willingness to do that is a God and I matter, not a pastor and I or another and I matter. Whether or not we can do this depends on whether or not we are submitted first to God. Subject appears again in this verse. We we don't submit or subject ourselves for the sake of the person to whom we're submitting or subjecting. But because of what a subjecting and submitting heart reveals about how we hope only in the sufficiency of Jesus. Chapters 4 and 5 end with warnings to people in the church, don't they? Specifically, entrust your souls to God. Right there at the end of chapter 4, judgment. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Subject ourselves to Him. Entrust our souls to Him. Be humble here. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is by our subjection. What First Peter has taught us. It is by our subjection that we most deeply unite ourselves with Christ's sufferings. It's in Jesus' indescribably humble willingness to submit himself to God's will by submitting himself to people who were not worthy of his submission that we discover the basis for the lives we've been called to live. Beloved, this letter calls or closes overall with a call to humility for all of us. Why? What is the significance of humility in a letter to suffering sojourners and exiles? Right? I mean, shouldn't the charge be to, since we're going to suffer, since the potential is there for us in this submission to suffer so much, shouldn't the letter end with a charge that takes some ground back then? Assert ourselves so that we don't have to go through these trials. Shouldn't we work to put ourselves in a place of power so that we can avoid suffering? No. No, again, we're not trying to walk into suffering deliberately. Our eyes are on Christ. We have been called to subject and submit ourselves to Him. When we do that in this world, we will suffer. Because no matter how you spend trying to work to put yourself in a place of power, no matter how you spin that or what you use to justify that, it will never be the way of Christ. It will never be the way of Christ. Our exaltation, notice here, our exaltation, our glory is in God's hands, not our own. Not our own. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less if it's anything. That's its place here. That's why humility is here. Look at Peter's rationale in verses 6 and 7. Since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves so that He may exalt you. Leave your exaltation in the hands of God. Cast your anxieties, your worries, your fear, your hesitation about entrusting your soul to Him. It's what we're afraid of doing. We're afraid of letting go. I'm afraid of letting go. He says, cast that all on me because I care for you. There's never been a more loving father. He is the epitome of that whole idea. He's the epitome of it. Do this because I care for you. Don't you understand? I am saying this to you because I care for your soul. I don't want you to get bottomed out. I don't want you to fall away. You see how the task of a shepherd runs into that? I'm supposed to fuel that. 
the idea that so that you know that God is not going to let you go. I'm here because God cares for you. Right? Or the pastor. I don't mean to... The text is not about me like it's just about me. I hope we understand that. It, it's... Cast all these cares and anxieties on Him because He cares for you. God cares about the anxious. God is close to the one riddled by anxiety. Particularly riddled about anxiety or with anxiety because of what it means to submit ourselves to Him. It is in humility then. It is in the forgetting of ourselves, the surrender of our own agendas and greed that we finally realize we're safe in the arms of God. The more, however, we fight for power and fight for influence and fight for control, the more we distance ourselves from the loving arms of our Father. We have to see this, all of us. It's time to let the self go. We need to be in this text sober-minded, so not self-centered, sober-minded and watchful because we don't have time for fighting to make this world our home. Because there's another adversary besides our flesh, besides the world. It's the devil himself. And his eyes are fixed on God's children in the world. He is a lion on the prowl, just waiting to find someone obsessed with themselves and obsessed with this world that he can pounce on and tear apart. The devil can't create out of nothing. He's not God. He's a created angel. He can, however, and is very skilled at working with the raw material we give him from our flesh. So he's just waiting to find us hoping in this world to make it our home so that he can pounce and tear us apart. For the believer then, security does not come. Security does not come. It will not come from asserting ourselves or gaining worldly power and influence or fighting to gain stability here. Security for the believer comes from letting go. It comes from humility, from the place where you say, all right, my life is in your hands, God. I submit above all things to you and to you alone. Security is not something you fight your way into. It is something you fall into. When you finally, when we can finally let go. Resist the devil. Stand firm in the faith through which God is guarding you and I. Trust that God is pleased with us completely when we have believed in Him only to save us. Beloved, this is the lot of the believer in this world. We are never alone in this exilic identity. Do you see what God is doing here? He's calling us back to the family picture at the end of 1 Peter. He wants us to remember our citizenship is not of this world. We are His called out special people. We are His beloved children. We are part of a brotherhood of suffering sojourners and exiles all over the world. Right? Beloved, remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. And we may be coming so obsessed with our own freedom that we forget those who are in chains. And we can't. We can't.
every believer in every place and at every time is enduring what all of us are enduring. That requires humility to see is what Peter is telling us. It requires a lack of self-absorption. absorption. We can't shrink the universe to the size of ourselves and our own problems. It's not cold at all. It's pastoral. What he's saying is, listen, life here in this world is hard for all of us. Just in different ways. But the deeper truth this morning, the foundational truth is this in 1 Peter 5. After all this talk and exhortation to entrust our souls to God and humble ourselves and be willing to suffer, Peter reminds us, after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So if you or I were to wash up on the shores on the other side and be unrecognizable. When we open our eyes there, Christ's will be the first eyes we see. And He Himself, Himself, do you see that? The chief shepherd Himself, He doesn't doesn't lend this one out. He doesn't contract this out. He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter ends this letter with what God will do. Right When this is all said and done, we will collapse into His arms, and there He will restore. That is, He will breathe life and breath into us that will last for eternity. He will confirm us. He will declare that we are His. He will hold His hand over us to the universe and say, Mine, this is my child. He will strengthen us. Our legs will never be weak again. They will never be weak again. We will walk and not grow weary. We will run and not faint. And He, finally, beloved, He will establish us. We will never be moved. That is the promise from our God. This is the work of God for us. It's all God's work. Do you see that? It's all grace. So to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Just as closing in in verse 12 by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, that's Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This, in verse 12, this is the contents of the whole letter. Right? This is the true grace of God, that He has chosen us to be His beloved, that we may proclaim the excellencies of our Savior to the world. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that will never fade, that is waiting safely and securely for us with Him. 
And as we sojourn like exiles in the world where we have no home, we identify with Him and display the beauty of Christ through our willingness to suffer by subjecting ourselves to authorities that cannot ever save us in order that the object of our hope might be displayed. We entrust our souls to Him and we let our bodies go. Not because that saves us, but because the one who does save us is able to hold us. Stand firm in that, beloved. Stand firm in the true grace of God. The grace that is able to save sinners. Change their identity. Secure them and lead them home. God has given this word to exiles in order that we might stand firm in His grace. That's how the letter ends. Not by wishing us luck and telling us to hold on, to do our best to hold out, but by reminding us through our, though our faith would be like shifting sand, we stand on grace. We do not make our stand on what we're able to do. We make our stand on what God has already done for us through Jesus Christ. So the purpose of God's word to his sojourning people in exile, even for those who are called to preach it, is that we all might stand firm in his grace and in nothing else. So I ask you this morning, do you stand on God's grace or do you stand on anything else? One will never fail. One is shifting sand that is bound to fail. So for those of you who have not believed on Christ to be born again, to ask forgiveness for your sins, who have not come to Him by grace through faith, now is the time. This is who He is. This is who He is. To be the sheep of God in this world is the only safe place in this world for your soul. And to those of you who are struggling bottoming out, trying to make it through, remember, the chief shepherd himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So the front is open this morning if you want to work through that by coming forward and praying. If you'd like to join our church, if you want to make this your home and become a member, now is the time to come and let us know. But I'll be here in the front as we sing a closing hymn of invitation. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, whom you've made so clear to us. In the Bible, Father, I pray that we would look to Him this morning. All of us would look to Him completely for everything. Lord, bring to life those who are dead this morning in trespasses and sins. Enable them to believe upon You for salvation. God, for those who continue to struggle, may they remember the same gospel that saves us is the gospel that carries and sustains us. So, Father, again, enable us to look to You. In the face of your son, Jesus Christ, this we ask and pray in his name and for his sake in our midst. Amen.